I'm Dr. Jillian Horton. Welcome to another episode of MedLife with Dr. Horton. Today's episode features two short but wonderful conversations I had recently that are both centered around the theme of connecting with patients. The first interview is a conversation I had with Dr. Deepu Gowda, internist and associate professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, whose work focuses on narrative medicine. We answer a difficult listener question from a physician who is feeling under so much pressure that he or she is having a hard time connecting with patients on a human level. It's a common situation, and Dr. Gowda provides great insight. The second conversation is my chat with Alan Alda. Yes, the Alan Alda, actor, Emmy and Golden Globe winner, director, screenwriter, and author. He also leads workshops through the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science to help physicians better connect with patients. We talk about the unique methods he uses in his popular workshops, including improv exercises, and why he sees the patient-physician connection as being so powerful. The sound qualities in these interviews is not studio quality because I was in the field and had impromptu conversations with these two lovely people. We hope you'll enjoy. here in New York City today, uh, spending some time with a friend of mine, Dr. Deepu Gowda from Columbia University. And I'm going to let uh, Dr. Gowda tell us a little bit about himself, and then we are going to read and respond to a letter from one of our readers. So welcome, Dr. Gowda, to this podcast. Dr. Horton, thank you so much for inviting me to join you on this podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist. I trained here at Columbia, and I joined the faculty uh, back in 2002, and I've stayed on ever since. I work as a hospitalist now, and I teach a course at the medical school called Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials, which teaches our students the history-taking skills, physical examination, and clinical reasoning. And I'm also involved in a field called narrative medicine. It's a field that is under the umbrella of medical humanities and has influenced my professional trajectory tremendously. And what narrative medicine really is, is it's a academic field that borrows from the humanities, that uh, looks at the intersection between art and literature and poetry and the creative world and medical practice and medical education. So we look at these uh, creative works as a way of understanding the patient's experience better, we look at writing and engagement with creative works as a way of understanding our own relationship to patients and the experience that we have in healthcare. Well, that's a lovely introduction. So you and I are sitting here today in the bus stop cafe. We could also call this doctors getting decaf, I guess. And what we're going to do is just share um, a letter and then talk a little bit about how your practice would influence your response. Okay, here's the letter. Dear Dr. Horton, I'm nearing the end of my training and really struggling to fit what drew me to medicine with the actual daily practice. I feel like when I see my patients, I look at them in units of time and see them making me late. I rush and plaster a smile on my face that is so artificial it must look slightly scary. 
This is the opposite of who I thought I was and how I'd practice. It breaks my heart. But I don't feel like there's an option to do anything differently given the high-volume demands of my specialty. Is there even any point in what I'm doing? It feels so meaningless. Um, I just want to thank the writer. It's it's such an honest letter and uh, really exposes one's own vulnerabilities. Uh, I think we come into this field with kind of this uh, overarching moral objective of being present for our patients always. And when we feel like we're not meeting that, there can be an awful lot of guilt and a lot of questioning about one's role in medicine. Um, So it took some courage to write this. Totally agree with that sentiment. And actually, I just want to ask you before you get into answering this letter, can you talk a little bit about during your training? Do you ever have moments that you recall that were particularly relatable in terms of feeling the way this letter writer wrote? Absolutely. And I would not even say in one's training. I would say and this happens in daily practice. This is just the nature of being human and the nature of being a clinician, uh, particularly in our current system of healthcare. When I say nature of being human, what I mean is we tend to habituate to our circumstances and we know that the work of healthcare, we are interfacing with patients at remarkable points in their lives, uh, points in their lives where they are uh, strained, where they're pushed to their limits, where they are dealing with deepest issues, uh, existential questions. And yet, from the clinician side, this is our daily activity. And not only daily activity, we're seeing numerous patients with similar challenges throughout the day. And so how do we bring our attention to the uh, singularity of the experience is one of the deepest questions, really, um, for clinicians. And, you know, I draw a little bit from our experience in humanities because uh, art and literature have many functions. But one of the functions I believe that they have is to bring our awareness to the present moment and help us recognize the singularity of the present moment. And I'm reminded of a series of paintings by Monet of the Rouen Cathedral. Monet went to this cathedral many times, and he painted the same cathedral many times. And these canvases are found all over the world, and each painting looks different because Monet recognized that each time he goes to that cathedral, it changes based on the quality of light, the time of day, the season, And I would probably imagine even his mood. And the reason why I bring those paintings up is because it's instructive in the sense that we recognize that each moment is unique and singular. And this does not happen automatically. It is an active process that requires our participation and requires an awakening. And there's different methods to do this. Part of it is just recognizing that this is an issue for human beings to needing to be awakened to the present moment. Um, another is to use a tool, using tools like looking at paintings and gaining some uh, meaning out of that. Another tool is mindful practice. You know, before, and, and Ron Epstein talks about this in, you know, in his writings and the book Attending and also in his talks, are there some practices that we can kind of put into our uh, the way we practice medicine, where before we see a patient, we take a breath, 
we slow our thinking, we slow our, you know, attention, bring it to the present moment, and to kind of cleanse us from what just occurred before and to bring about a kind of an awakening and a rebirth to what's possible with this next patient. So these types of practices, I think, can bring us to the present moment. But I think just to recognize that this is not a singular, uh, unique challenge that you are experiencing, that your challenge is shared by many people, including us sitting here at this table in Bus Stop Cafe right now. Well, and I think this is probably part of why you and I end up doing the kind of work that we do, right? It's part of the the quest for meaning to continually deepen our relationship with what we're doing and to push against those same tensions that our letter writer here is talking about. I was wondering if you'd speak about your background as a DJ. You know, I think one of the things that I hear so often and used to hear as an associate dean was people talk about everything that they feel that they had to give up to do medicine, including things that they feel are gone forever from their lives. And one of the things that I think can be so helpful for our younger colleagues to hear is how um, have people like you and me retained our relationships to the things that we used to love before. So could you talk a little bit about that? Thank you for that question. Um, music is important to me. It's uh, something that uh, affects me on a deeply emotional level. It's connected to the past. It's connected to community. It's uh, I work with music a lot to help me make sense of my life and kind of bring the emotional connection again to life um you know the question is you know how how have i been able to maintain that connection to music um despite kind of being clinicians and we both you know have clinical roles we have educational roles administrative roles this is a practice i think that that uh i encourage our students to start very early it's true that when you start medical training um there is a powerful force that if we don't actively curate the way we use our time and our energy, uh, the medical training will crowd everything else out. It's possible when you're going through medical training to do nothing else but read medical texts, prepare for the boards, you know, et cetera, et cetera, leaving time for very little else. So that is an option for you. That is an option that some students take. But I do feel that that path leads to a depleted life. Yes, we want to learn as much as we can. We want to serve our patients at the highest level, but we ourselves have to stay whole persons. And so it requires a kind of self-knowledge. You know, what are those things that we need in our lives that allow us to feel fully ourselves? And it's going to depend on who you are as a person. Where do you find joy? Where do you find kind of restoration for some people it might be might be their practice of running for others it might be their practice of meditation for others it might be playing their violin for others it might be their spiritual practice their religious practice Um, for me it was kind of making sure I came back to music uh, because not only was it about finding some meaning through music but also the just a joy you know how can we get out of our heads and how can we get out of our professions and just enjoy the richness and the joy of living. We want to have that as physicians. If we recognize that in ourselves, we'll be able to bring that out in our patients. Because ultimately, isn't that what we're trying to do with our patients? Not only to alleviate suffering, but to help facilitate 
a deeper experience of living. So we have to experience that ourselves. I'm going to ask you one more thing. So you are an expert in narrative medicine, and I wonder if you can think of one digestible thing that our letter writer can do from your vast experience and your prescriptive uh, repertoire in narrative medicine. What's something that this person can do right now, utilizing all the skills that you teach to potentially make themselves feel better? Ah, beautiful. Um, and I, I like what you said about you know make themselves feel better because you draw our attention to not only hey, what are the skills that we need to do to be good physicians or what are the knowledge that we need to have, but you're acknowledging and recognizing that our emotional state matters. Now, there's many things that we do in narrative medicine that I think ends up allowing us to be in a more attentive, more present state. Um, I find that the activities that train our skills of attention bring us to feelings of greater satisfaction. And so if there's one thing you could do, what I would say is whatever work of art or creative media that you enjoy, whether it's reading poetry, whether it's looking at a painting, whether it's listening to a song, when you're experiencing that, commit to it. We often, let's just think about music for a second, we oftentimes have music in the background, you know, and that's wonderful to have that in the background. But another activity, another way of experiencing that music is to turn everything off and just commit to listening to a song and just experience it deeply with your whole body, with your emotional you know, self open. And I think what happens if you do that is you bring your full attention to the song. You listen to each individual instrument. You listen to the narrative arc of the song. You listen to the emotional build and the release at the end. And my feeling is that what we're doing there is we are tapping into one's mindfulness, strengthening one's attention. And whenever we do that, we bring ourselves back to our bodies. You know, we use the phrase, I came to my senses, as, as a phrase of saying, I got, got some kind of clarity of my situation. But I came to my senses also says something about mindfulness. And when we engage with a work of art or a song with total commitment, total attention, we come back to our senses. And that experience is one of pleasure. I love that advice because it is actionable. I think so often in training, we're looking for something we can do to not just make other people feel better, but to make ourselves feel better before we can get to that next step of helping others. So thank you so much for that. What a pleasure it is to sit and talk with you today again, my friend, Dr. Deepu Gowda, and we are at the illustrious Bus Stop Cafe in New York City. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I am here today with Alan Alda at the Alda Center for Communicating Science at a workshop that we've been at for the last couple of days. Alan, what a privilege it is for me to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Alan, I run a blog for students through the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and the students, medical students and residents can write in 
and ask me their most pressing questions about medicine. I want to talk to you about what you would like to tell those students. The first thing I want to ask you is, you are using improv to enhance the communication skills of scientists and of physicians. What is one thing from this work that medical students and residents can take and begin applying to their lives today to help them be better communicators? Well, first of all, you're talking to the right person because I'm an expert in one area of medicine. I'm an expert at being a patient. So I can give you the patient's point of view. And from the patient's point of view, I think the one thing that we would like to see more of in the medical uh, arena is so amazingly obvious but needs to be thought about, which is to please pay attention to us to let us know you're paying attention to us, the whole us, not just the us that has the symptoms, not just the part of us that's symptomatic, but who we are, where we come from, what we do, all of that contributes to our health. And all of that might give you data that you need. But most importantly, the old idea of the bedside manner is disappearing faster and faster like a speeding train. And There was a time when that's pretty much all doctors had to cure us with. They didn't have antibiotics. They had a kind manner and a a good touch. And they could tell what was wrong with us because they saw more than the symptoms. But paying attention is a health-giving process. There's evidence for that. In one study, doctors who were thought by their patients to be empathic Those patients followed their doctor's orders more readily, 19% more likely to follow the doctor's advice. I'd like to be part of that 19%, you know. That's a better result than many of the drugs that we prescribe or numbers needed to treat, right? It's it's sort of what I said. To some extent, the drugs we take may be just another part of replacing bedside manner as a good placebo. You know, students sometimes talk to us about dual pressures. So they are under so much pressure from the system to be efficient and to be quick. And what you've just talked about is really what's at the heart of establishing relationships with patients and therapeutic alliance. How do you counsel people to try to tone down the voice that tells them to pay attention to those pressures and be more present? You know, one of the things I think we've found is that the more you pay attention to the other person as a person, the more the pressure goes down a little bit. Fight or flight and cortisol coursing through your body can be reduced by human contact. I mean, not not contact that has an antipersonal nature to it, argumentative nature, but contact that expresses kindness, gratitude, all the good social feelings, that can actually relax you and help you focus on the other person's well-being, but it also contributes, I think, to your own well-being. As we teach communication, both to scientists and physicians, we found that we were learning more ways in which it applied than the ways we thought. We first started teaching scientists to communicate their work to the public we began to realize it was necessary for them to communicate well, to communicate with other scientists so they could collaborate with them. It made teamwork better within a lab. We didn't expect that. 
And when physicians communicate better with the patient, not only does the patient's health get better, the doctor's health gets better. The sense of well-being gets better. The teamwork that the doctor needs to get the job done. Communicating with physicians and nurses that are sometimes spread out on a, on a spectrum of time and place. They can communicate better with them and act as one unit better with better communication. And that reduces stress. I've read studies that showed that when there's good communication and empathy taking place, everybody in the hospital is a little happier. It sounds too hard to believe, but that's what the studies have shown. I have one more question to ask you. I um, wrote a piece for our blog today uh, that came in response to a senior physician who wrote about the issue of ageism in medicine and a perception that sometimes uh, in our practice that our most senior members are not valued uh, by our most junior members. And I responded to uh, a beautiful letter from a colleague about that. But you shared a story yesterday that I found really touching, and it was the concept of experience something that happened to you on a drive on the way to Sag Harbor, a lesson learned. Could you just share that anecdote with us again now? It's interesting because it, it applies to what you asked me a minute ago when you asked me what my advice would be. I try not to give advice because it's the same thing as giving somebody a lecture or a set of tips. And tips don't change you. Experience changes you. And our workshops, as you saw for the past two days, are experiences. It's a collection of experiences, each one building on the other, until finally you're able to do things you couldn't do before. But the difference between tips and experience was really borne out to me as I was driving through Sag Harbor one day, where I drive all the time, and there's a speed limit sign that says 25 miles an hour. And I would routinely go past that sign at 40 miles an hour. That's the way I drove past that sign. And one day a cop stopped me and gave me a ticket. And from that time on, I never went more than 25 miles an hour past that sign. And the thing I learned from that is the sign was the tip. The ticket was the experience. What a great lesson. Well, on that note, I hope on your drive back home today that you stick to 25 miles per hour. I'm getting out and crawling past that sign. <laughs> well, Alan, thank you so much for your time today. And congratulations on your wonderful graphic novel. I just think it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Those were my conversations with Dr. Deepu Gowda and actor Alan Alda. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. Please also leave us a rating and let us know how we're doing. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, General Internist and Director of Programs in Wellness and Health Humanities at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thank you for listening. <laughs>